This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we're joined by recent MacArthur Genius Grant winner, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the national correspondent for The Atlantic, whose latest book, Between the World and Me, is a nominee for the 2015 National Book Award. This fall, Coates sits down with Khalil Gibran Muhammad, director of NYPL's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, for a conversation on race, writing, and more. Uh, with that opening, I, I was feeling like it was either an Ali or Frazier fight about to jump <laughs> off with this amazing crowd and, yes. and this stage. Uh, I think uh, it goes without saying how uh, pleased we are to have you here at the New York Public Library. And as a representative of the library, um, I first just want to acknowledge um, how special it is to have a writer who is speaking to the urgency of now. Uh, and who's using uh, his voice in the best of literary traditions uh, to speak to conditions uh, which uh, we must confront. Uh, now, whether we can fix them, uh, that's what we're here to talk about. Right. Now, I also want to take liberties uh, because given that you've just won the MacArthur uh, Genius Award, and I'm sure there are other awards in the making, I'm thinking that on eBay, this book might be worth something. Uh, <laughs> I gotta do this right now? Yeah, yeah. Because only this book would be the one that was signed at live at NYPL in this moment. And you can all certify to it. Didn't Scarlett Johansson spit in a, a napkin on Jay Leno or something and sell it for $90,000? I'm thinking your signature's worth at least that much. All jokes aside. Um, so Tanahasi, uh, this might be the you lightest. You ask me questions while I do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I just need a signature. I, you know, the book's worth less now that you're actually writing something. I know. Something. I'm sorry, <laughs> man. <laughs> I need another book. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm okay. Ready. So um, this might be the lightest moment that we have tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways, um, I think that is the challenge that this book poses to us. Um, this is a heavy reading. It's one of the, literally the lightest, heaviest books that has probably mm. ever been written. Mm. Um, and you've written it to your son. Uh, we've talked a lot about Baldwin, and we'll talk some more about, about his role as Toni Morrison has claimed. But let's just start with the motivation. What, what was the circumstance, either literary or uh, in the world, that motivated you to put these words together? Well, I, I think with any book, um, that, like there's a story, um, and because I'm here, I'm going to take the opportunity to not give uh, the press release story and to you know give like if I can the biography of the book. Um, Howard University uh, plays a, a, a strong role uh, in this book. Um, it is the light of this book. Um, 
I was there as a 19-year-old young man uh, trying to live up to you know, the great ancestry, the great history, uh, the great heritage of Howard University. So many great writers had come through here. I was aware of that. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time in the library at Howard University. And one of the uh, most important books I read while I was there was The Fire Next Time. And I, I sat up in Founders Library, in, in, in um, the Graduate Library of Founders. Um, and I you know, went, basically went through the fire next time in one day, uh, just in one sitting, just sat there and read it. And you know, it's not that long of a book. Um, I finished it, and, and this was true with a lot of the things that I, I read at that time. I, I, I didn't quite understand what I had read. But I knew that I was powerfully affected by it. And I was sort of amazed that somebody could like just produce something like that, you know? Because to me, it just looked like, I mean, I didn't know anything about writing at that point. It just looked like he had just sat down and a book had spun out of nowhere. Um, th that stayed with me uh, for many years. And the second thing that happened was uh, a friend of mine at Howard University, shortly after I left, shortly after my son was born, um, was mistaken uh, for a criminal. Um, my friend was in Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, which at that period, and perhaps even now, uh, but definitely at that period, had, you know, I would argue, probably the most brutal uh, police department in the country. Um, my friend was followed by a police officer uh, from Prince George's County in the suburbs of Maryland through Washington, D.C., into Virginia, and was murdered, uh, as far as I am concerned, uh, mere yards from his fiancée's home. Um, my friend was the child of a prominent radiologist who had worked her way uh, up out of poverty uh, from Louisiana. Um, he is everything, or was everything, um, that you could imagine when black folks say the word twice as good. Mm -hmm. that, that was his family. They would have posted a child from it. He was murdered. Nothing was done about it. No charges were pressed. The police officer was put right back out on the street. That made me so angry. <laughs> and, and how old were you at the time? I was, uh, so uh, let's see, Samari was born 24. 24. 24, 24. And this is uh, late 90s. Late 90s, yeah, mm -hmm. late 90s. Uh, 2000, he was murdered in 2000. Okay. And I just, the, the fire for that burned in me so strong. And I could not believe that the world would not even really acknowledge his death. That, you know, that life could just keep going. Now, you know, at that time, you know, you didn't have iPhones. People weren't recording things. It just wasn't, you know, the same. And it was just like, he's dead. Move and it on. Was, it was also a year when racial profiling entered the American lexicon. Wow. because of the federal investigations on the New wow. Jersey Turnpike. We, yeah. had no, we had no shorthand right. for the kinds of everyday right. practices that right. Right. you described. I, I carried that. It was my ambition to someday do something with that. Uh, and then about, uh, I guess about two and a half years ago, um, I re went back and read The Fire Next Time. I can't even remember what, why, but I just went, went back and reread the whole thing. Unlike the last time, I got everything. And I called my agent, Gloria, who is here somewhere, and, oh, there's Gloria. Hi, Gloria. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I said to Gloria, I said, I said, why don't people write like this anymore? Like, I couldn't believe somebody could be that. And then getting it, like getting, I mean, you talk about like the heaviest, lightest book you've ever, I mean, that one right there. And I was so profoundly moved and so on fire. Now, I could not understand why, literally, like in the bookmark, you didn't have little book, single essay. I'm just going to go right at you and tell you, tell you what the deal is. And I'm going to talk right. very, very directly to you. And I said to Gloria, I said, I said, why don't people do, like, why don't people do this anymore? And Gloria said, as Gloria's, you know, Gloria, I'm going to do a small Gloria imitation. <laughs> and she said, well, 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 Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy was one of a kind. 
Gloria knew Jimmy. So she said, Jimmy was just one of a kind. You know, Jimmy could do that. And I, I said, do, do you think I could try it? <laughs> she said, yeah. 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 And I called and I had the same conversation with my editor, Chris Jackson. And I, I just started writing. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have this. I didn't have this in any sort of full way. I, was, I had a lot of emotion. I had my friend who was killed. And I had um, my ancestor, James Baldwin, mm -hmm. you know, sitting right there. So let's back up the, the bigger context because you didn't just start whole cloth, right? You didn't literally sit down and say uh, to channel Jimmy and write this book. You have been blogging for years. I had, that's true. And, and not just your ordinary blogger. You've had an obsession with history. Yeah. So where did that obsession, when was the moment when you decided that your literary career, your career as a journalism would run through the past? Well, I, you know, I, I grew up in a household that was obsessed with history, and I was always extremely, extremely frustrated. Like, I can remember being at Howard and reading the Africa coverage in the Washington Post and being just pissed off about how ahistorical it was. Um, and one of my great frustrations even today uh, is how conversations around racism and conversations around our color line, conversations around white supremacy, for whatever reason, tend to begin roughly around the time of the Moynihan Report. Um, it is that everything before, nothing, you know, before 1965 really, really matters. That if you want to understand a black community, begin somewhere around the war on poverty and then proceed forward. Um, which is lunacy to me. I mean, it's just absolutely, absolutely crazy to me. And so um, I, I thought as a journalist, that was what I could bring, you know, some, some sense of the deep past. That, that was the other thing that led to this book. I had written this article, The Case for Reparations, and I was somewhat displeased with the article. Can we give it up for The Case for Reparations? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Before you tell that story, right. that article was so influential and ta was so in demand that someone asked me, they were like, well, we can't get ta You think you maybe, I mean, <laughs> maybe you could explain this to a group of people? And I said, sure. <laughs> Thank you. But no, but that's real, though, because it wasn't like I invented the concept. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Right. You're more than capable of explaining the concept. I mean, there's no, there's no reason why, you know, you don't, you don't even need my article to call you to do that. I mean, what? That, that shouldn't have been necessary to begin with. But I, I finished the article, and I was actually somewhat displeased with it um, because... Give, give people who haven't read it, sure, probably it's, five people in the room, but just sure, it's a, it's a um, slight it's, sketch. It's an argument uh, for reparations, and um, it is rooted in the housing policy of this country uh, in the mid to mid-late 20th century. Um, and it just takes that as a particular example. Um, and there's some, you know, other stuff in there, but that's really the root of, of, of that, you know, article. I, I feel like you could have written that article from any number of dimensions. Um, I'm saying you could have written it from the perspective of mass incarceration. But I, I chose housing, and I, and, I, and I wrote it that way. Um, basically, we made an investment in this country in building a middle class. Um, the suburbs do not, did not appear by magic. Um, they appeared because of government policy, and the second half of that government policy uh, was cutting black folks out. And as I do this, because Khalil and I had a great conversation about making sure we credit historians, I have to say Ira Katz Nelson, who is in the audience right here, was influential to that, to that, to that argument. Um, yeah. And that's not just, you know, um, blowing smoke. I mean, he, he really, really was. And I felt like a number of historians had, had done the work of outlining the racism implicit in, 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 in uh, uh, New Deal policies and 20th century policies, because the weakness with reparations is always people look at you and say, well, the slaves are long dead. But there are plenty of people who are around right now, um, you know, who were certainly affected uh, and around uh, for New Deal policies. And so I pulled from the history, 
made that argument. But when I was done, I was somewhat displeased because I felt like the article did not explain how it felt to live your daily life under a system of plunder, under a system of theft. How does it individually feel to, to live that way? And you know, that, that was like, a, I guess, the main challenge for Between the World and Me. Well, uh, so let's give more credit to the article because it seems that you were building a case that begins, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about those blogs right. because uh, for fans of the blog, you're taking micro histories uh, often wrestling with thick quotes, often primary quotes, right. or responding to what you've described as the lunacy of thinking everything begins and ends in the 1960s, which obviously is a period fraught with all sorts of racial ideologies that, that, that are deeply rooted. Right. So the, the article is an attempt to do something more than just tell this narrative, this contemporary narrative of housing discrimination. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you're responding to something. I want you to talk a little bit more. I mean, you're in, you're in the, the world of highbrow journalism. Uh, so you've got people who think they know this stuff better than most. Right. You among them, but you all don't disagree. Right. Unpack that a little bit and how the blog relates to those, those battles over how to interpret the past. Well, I mean, one of the cool things, I mean, this is no longer true, but it was true in the early days of the blog, is um, I had uh, great teachers. Um, and my teachers were in my comment section. Uh, a number of them were graduate students, um, just people who knew a lot more than me and were able to steer me towards sources and talk to me about you know, what I should read and what I should avoid. And uh, like, there's something beautiful in that. I, you know, I was raised by, 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 by you know, a father who is you know, an autodidact himself. Um, I was raised you know, with the notion that knowledge does not belong to schools. That's one way you can get it, but it does not belong, and you can get it yourself. Um, and, and I was empowered. You know, I, I was empowered when I came to the Atlantic to, to, to really go out and find. I had luxury, I had space to really read and explore in a way that I, I really hadn't had before then. And, and a lot of that, you know, the, the readings came, came directly out of the blog. And, you know, like the interesting thing about a case for reparations, and I guess at the end of the day, this book is I, I think like circa 2010, I, you know, I was not in favor of reparations. It was only through the exploration of history that I, you know, I came to not only believe in reparations, but to believe as I believe now that it is actually the key, that it's not um, a part of a bunch of other solutions, that in fact it is the, the thing that cannot be taken out, that it actually is the essence of the problem mm. right there. Um, that was only through the exploration of history that I got that. And so I was thinking, I, wanted, I was baiting him to talk about Jonathan Chait and his... Oh, really? Yeah. No, you can just ask me about him. I'll answer any question. <laughs> you just ask me. Well, because, because I think um, there are a number of voices that ring in my head who your work is explicitly engaged with. Uh, in, in the Do you way mean that, in opposition to, in like, opposition fighting to, with? Right. Yeah, okay. So in a way that scholars obviously have footnotes and you can see sort right. of the arguments unfold back and forth, right. you're not writing with footnotes, but you are writing with voices out there. So maybe just, just talk about the state of play. So you've talked about it historically, you've talked about reparations, but this book clearly is original in one significant formulation among many, but one being that you wrestle with the issue of violence within the black community in ways that typically are positioned as an either or. Yeah, Either that's, these that's, are explorations that right. are about the terrible things that black people do to themselves, right. or they are about the terrible things that whites do to black people. Yeah. But here, 
and probably surprising to many, you found a way to web, uh, web those two, two things together. And that seems to me to be an explicit response to the conversation we've been having about Michael right. Brown, for example. Right, well, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a very much a response to the notion of uh, quote-unquote black-on-black crime or black people not caring about black-on-black -black crime. I, it, and I, I think people who, regrettably, you know, people who I, I agree with quite a bit play into this uh, sometimes because they, they are afraid of talking about um, neighbor-on-neighbor, as, as someone, you know, helpfully phrased it for me, neighbor-on-neighbor crime that happens in African-American communities. And we say neighbor-on-neighbor crime because the vast majority of crime that happens in, in any community is done by other community members. That was always true. That did not become true in 1965. That has always been true in black communities and in other people's communities. It's just true. Um, people don't tend to, you know, uh, take the subway to the other side of town, you know, to, to commit a crime. They tend to rob people who, who are right around them. And in that sense, the black community is just another human community. And the fact that the black community suffers more crime is part of the oppression. It's not separate from the oppression. Mm -hmm. It's not something that, you know, mutated over. It is part of what happens when you have a group of people who, uh, over the course of generations, have been isolated, segregated, plundered, have had things taken from them. The expectation that the amount of crime that happens in their neighborhoods will somehow be the same as what happens in other neighbors is, is absurd. Right. It's, it's just absurd. Uh, you know, I, I don't find it hard to explain, nor am I afraid of any sort of conversation uh, about the kind of neighbor-on-neighbor -neighbor violence that happens in African-American communities. What the hell do you expect to happen? Right. It just makes sense. You actually take the argument a step further, uh, both in the book as well as in a recent Atlantic cover, a story called The Black Family and Mass Incarceration. The argument goes a step further by saying that we ought to read the violence within the African-American community or neighbor-on-neighbor neighbor violence as symptomatic of oppression. Right. And this is the, the addition that pushing back against the fact that it's been used as an excuse to justify further oppression. Right, right, so right. So because of what black people do to themselves, we can't help them. That's right. We have to That's withdraw right. from the equation right. until they fix this problem. Or even worse, we, 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 we jail you at higher rates. I mean, we actually right. do other things to you. We use an other, uh, you know, a different arm. Because you commit so much crime around each other, we don't invest benevolently. We invest malevolently. You know what I mean? In, in the, you know, by, with, with the, uh, the long arm of the state. Um, systems of oppression have to justify themselves, yeah. you so, know? So I, I want to play a little bit with some of your words because I think the, that's one of the gifts that you've given to this topic is you've put flesh on the bones of what often are um, conversations dominated by numbers and statistics and uh, in and of itself a dehumanizing language of a, terrible, a terribly tragic human drama. Mm -hmm. So plunder. What, uh, my graduate students are here and you know, <laughs> we played with this. and. It, where, did, where was the inspiration for using that particular word to pull all of these threads together? Um, when I was writing the case for reparations, obviously repair, uh, reparations means that something has been taken from somebody. Um, I, I started off my career as a poet, um, and as a poet, you know, one of the things I, I learned was that um, not just economy of words, but within that economy of words, you choose words that have certain angles, that have certain edges, that affect people in a certain way. So like when I write an article for The Atlantic, it's never enough for me to win the argument logically. You gotta feel it. 
Mm. You got to, you know, you gotta, you're not just aiming at the head, you're aiming at the heart. It's not enough for somebody to read the article, uh, say, wow, that was correct, and then forget about it. Um, better for the person to read the article and say, I don't know if that was correct, go to bed thinking about it, wake up thinking about it, walk down the street thinking about mm. it, turning it over and over and over again. You do that by being very, very choosy about your words and how you articulate things. Um, plunder was just a true word. It was just the truest, truest word. And, you know, like I went through all, you know, theft. You know, I went through like all the, you know, like it became clear to me that, that, that it was theft. I, you know, the lead person in the case for reparations, and I guess this was the, like the first big inspiration. Um, reporting is so great because you get so much wisdom from other people. Um, the, the, the main, you know, protagonist, if there is one in the case for reparations, is a gentleman by the name of Clyde Ross. And I, I sat down with him the first time I interviewed him, and I said, you know, Mr. Ross, where are you from? And he said, uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I said, oh, the home of the blues. He said, yeah. I said, why did you come to Chicago? He said, there was no law. And I said, what do you mean? Of course there were laws. He said, no, 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 no. He said, there were no black judges. There were no black police officers, no black attorneys. That was no law. And what I understood was that he was outside of the law. The law actually didn't exist to protect him. Mm. That the law actually existed as he laid it out, as he started talking, to take from him. And so normally we think about the period of, of people taking things from black people as ending with slavery. It's even in how we talk about, you know, segregation. You know, we don't think about, like, say, um, folks being barred from the University of Mississippi as plunder. But it is. It's a public institution. They tax you for that. Right. And you have to obey the law and you have to hold up your end of the social contract, but you don't get the same protections. And privilege. That, That's plunder. That's mm -hmm. a con. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is exactly what it is. And as far as I'm concerned, it is the dominant thread. Uh, in explaining the relationship between African Americans and a government and society from 1619 up until today. Yeah. So speaking of plunder, uh, you open with the story of uh, your son, Samari. Yes. And telling him about an experience that you had with a journalist. And I, I think for anyone who's read the book or started the book, I mean, you are, you literally smack the reader in the face. Uh, with the boldness of both how you paint the picture of what's happened, uh, but also what you make of it. Uh, so I just wanted to read this passage. Uh, Lincoln's government of the people did not mean your mother or your grandmother, and it did not mean you and me. As for now, it must be said that the elevation of the belief in being white was not achieved through wine tastings and ice cream socials, but rather through the pillaging of life, liberty, labor, and land. How can that not be true? I mean, I'm just I don't, I'm not trying to compliment myself. Like, I'm just right. saying. <laughs> like, how can that not be? Like, how else would it, like, how did it happen? You know, I, I, I was thinking about this. Like, I really appreciate the compliment about being bold, but, and I don't want to make this a mutual admiration side, but isn't that what you guys, and by you guys, I mean historians, isn't that what you're saying? Like what you've been saying, I mean, isn't it? Like that's the read I get from the, and I know that people who say other things, but when I say, okay, what is the best book to go, you know, and read, say, well, let's say something like that people maybe you consider right down the middle on the Civil War, and people say, go read Battle Cry for Freedom. Well, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had to go back and reread it recently. That's what's happening in that book. This is Oxford History of America. This is not some obscure text right. over here. I mean, isn't that what, 
No, the history I mean, is. I mean, the, I mean, the great thing about being a historian is you can find primary quotes of villainous people uh, at every turn. You don't have to, to dig very deeply, <laughs> which, which, which gets at a bigger problem, right, which is how can the villainy that is just a few archival boxes away, certainly, you know, here in this building and at 135th Street at the Schomburg Center, be so lost to history? Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how can it be that the record of history, which tells us how civilization, both in an idea and in what we might agree are its realities, its brick and mortar, how did they come? Somebody built right. the what? railroads, laid the red bricks on the road, right. extracted the uh, coal from the, uh, from, uh, the mines. Right. Well, I think, um, in, you know, throughout history, all great powers seek to sanctify themselves. Mm. You know, Charlemagne wants to be blessed by the Pope you know, to make his rule official. It, it is not enough to just create a social construct of whiteness. It has to be sanctified. It has to be rendered just, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead because I know we were supposed to talk about this, but this is where that um, a Barbara Fields' book, Racecraft, okay. where it, you know, becomes so, so key, you know. And the basic argument of this book is um, we have a, a notion in America that, as far as I'm concerned, filters through all of our conversation uh, about racism, uh, and you know, I talk about this in the book, and it holds that there is a unique race of people called white who come from Europe, who are pure and are here. There is a unique race of people who we call black who come from Africa and are here. There is a unique Asian race that comes from some place called Asia and are here. There is a unique race of Native Americans and increasingly a unique race of Hispanics and Latinos who are here. And this is written in blood. This is somehow written in the DNA as it inscribed in science. But in fact, what you find is that these definitions, these allegedly biological hard and fast definitions are not consistent across history and are certainly not consistent across geography. And when you try to understand like why we call something white today and why we call something black uh, today, you go back into the history and you cannot get away from the notion of plunder. Someone decided that they wanted to be able to strip as many people as possible of labor, the fruits of their labor. They called that group of people black. But that notion isn't consistent, you know, across time. And then we've had, you know, groups come to America, you know, at various points and not necessarily be called white. And slowly, because there's some sort of political interest, they get called white. If you think about the world that way, you know, if you understand race as a done thing, not the work of God, not the work of James, not the work of God, but an actual done thing, a decision that was made by a group of people, it, it charges you with some things. It charges you to fix some things. But if you can make it mystical, if you can make it the work of James, if you can make it the work of God's, then you can say, well, this is just natural. Right. Then the, the inequality, the wealth gap, it, it becomes sanctified. It's just a thing, not my fault, man. Right. You know, I, did, I didn't choose this. It ain't got nothing to do with me. Right. You know? Racecraft. Racecraft, very good book yeah. <laughs> by a great historian, Barbara Fields. So let's talk a little bit more about these white people. Um, <laughs> because I think that on one hand, a, a young man who grows up in Baltimore at the height of the crack epidemic can fall into an archetype that we're all too familiar with. And in the parts of the story where you throw us curveballs, you tend to talk about the diversity of your college experience mm -hmm. and the infinite expressions of black humanity, which is 
for many white people almost, you know, is as crazy as the moment when uh, the hooded Klansman in the Dave Chappelle skit right. turns out to be black and somebody's head explodes. Right, 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 right. Really? Right. Um, so so th those are really interesting ways in which you subvert kind of the dominant narrative. But, but one way you do it is drawing on a, you know, the body of work that scholars might call whiteness studies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but as within this literary context, um, you are really challenging readers to let go of an identity um, that will force them to name themselves something else. You, you right. refer to white America literally as a syndicate. Yes. But most white Americans, not only in the way which you've described, which is like, I didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, this is, you know, when you say verbs over nouns, you're saying, no, you're active, you are actively yes. participating in ongoing plunder by virtue of holding on to this identity. Yes, yes, and I just, um, I actually think, you know, um, one of the reasons this is hard to deal with is that, um, again, you know, the, the dominant language has this idea that white and black are, are two sides of the same coin, but, but they're not. They're not. Um, black identity has two really dominant things going on. It has the race portion, which is put on us. People say, you know, you, you, you know we have defined you as part of a black race. And then you have a, a cultural and an ethnic portion of it, a, a, a traditional portion, a historic portion that defines how we talk, that defines a certain familiarity between me and, you know, a Khalil, for instance, um, that defines certain foods, certain musics, a whole, you know, folkways, and that, that really is what is in the Howard University chapter. White identity is very different, you know, and I, you know, I'm willing to have a fight about this, um, but as far as I can tell, you know, white identity is, is, is essentially an identity of power. It's just a racial identity. Now, underneath of that are ethnic and cultural identities. You know what I mean? Somebody might say, you know, I'm a Californian. I really identify with that. I'm, a, you know, I'm from the Bronx. That's really, really important to me. You know, uh, in Irish, I, that's very, very, my family's, you know, I, I hear people say, it's my family's traditional Irish Catholic. There are identities within that that have been incorporated in that. But whiteness itself is just power, and so the end of white supremacy in one real, really, really profound way is the end of whiteness, mm -hmm. in a way that it's not actually the end of blackness. Um, the so, people who believe themselves to be white, as I argue in the book, have so much more to lose. So, so let's break this down a little bit further, because you use the, the notion of a dream, a metaphor, um, in lieu of, I would say, American exceptionalism, mm -hmm. right? I think You've, as the poet in you, decided let's not get caught up in the clunkiness of that, <laughs> which true. is bandied about in our political discourse right. and generally is a good thing, right. uh, as opposed to this dream. So just define the dream. Well, well the dream is that, um, you know, and, and part of this is in what we were just talking about. The dream is that um, the things that I have in the world are, are natural and were gotten um, through dent of hard work and labor. Um, the dream is that the suburbs that ring our cities uh, sprung up uh, because people just went out there and you know, took their hard-earned wages and invested. Um, social engineering is what uh, people pitch for black people. Social engineering is not uh, what built the white middle class. Uh, the dream is the notion that, and this is the American exceptionalism portion of it, that America is distinct from all states and nations in the world. That whereas almost every state that you know, I've come across uh, has violence at its roots, America has a, a particular nobility. 
at its roots that other states do not. Uh, part of that is you know, the whole Enlightenment dream of being free of the entanglements of Europe and founding this, this you know, great place that would be you know, a representative of liberty and equality. You know? and, and that's still with us. You know? It's the notion that somehow we are better than. Um, and I believe that the black experience is the ultimate, and it's just so important. This is why I say you don't know American history if you don't know, you know African-American history. Uh, the African-American experience in this country is the most um, perhaps compelling evidence that America is the work of men. <laughs> and it is a state like any other state that has you know, graced uh, history. I thought you were going to talk about pot roast, blueberry pies, fireworks, <laughs> ice, cream, ice cream sundaes, <laughs> what do you have with blueberry pies and immaculate bathrooms? Right, those are awesome. Memorial Day cookouts. That's great. I was like, dang. That's great. <laughs> In order to be cool with ta I can't enjoy fireworks <laughs> on Memorial Day. <laughs> Which does raise some of the challenges, right? <coughs> so remember, we're talking to your son. Right. And I know that consistently uh, I've heard people, readers of this work, you know, ask me, uh, talk in online venues about, uh, does he really want me to teach this book to my 15-year-old son? Oh, you can do, do what we, you want. Do I we mean, really, do we really that's want... That's you. You don't have to. I'm not, you know what I mean? No, that, but... You do, what you, do what you feel. But, but how are we to reconcile in this sense. This is what I would teach my, this is what I've been teaching right. my son you know, right. all his life. You know? the, the, the definition of the dream, I guess <clears throat> another way of putting it, if the, if the dream is inclusive of pot roasts mm -hmm. and fireworks mm -hmm. and immaculate lawns, mm -hmm. then where does that leave black folks in their own aspirations in American society? That's a great question. Um, I don't think we can escape that. And I don't know that you should try to escape it. And I, I make pot roast. I don't have anything against making pot roast. <laughs> um, but I try to think about where the meat came from. And mm. I try to remember where the, where the meat came from. And I try to think about how much of the meat I'm actually consuming. Um, what I want people to do, you see, the, the dream is not just the notion of um, everything's great. It, the dream is a riff on the idea, as you know, of you know, how brothers and sisters would talk, well, brother, are you conscious? Are you conscious? The dream is the unconscious. You know what mm. I mean? Mm. It's like when I can remember when I was you know, a kid, my dad, he would compliment people, that brother's conscious, that sister's real <laughs> conscious. You know, the dream is the opposite. It is to be without consciousness. The walking dead. Yes, very much so, yeah. If you want to yeah. go there, yeah. But it, it, it is to be unaware. Of, of, what, of the world that is, you know, around you, is to be unaware of the things that make your life possible. And I think all the juice in, in, in the conversation begins once we can admit that. You know, once we can say, you know what, we, we really are in a mess here. But, it, it, you know, it don't make us bad people. You, you know, humanity, that's the story of humanity itself. Right. You know, it just means that we're like everybody else that came before us. And now we have to figure out how to attempt to live morally within this and do our best. But we can't even get there. You know what I mean? Because we, we're divine. You know, we're kissed by God. And we never do anything wrong. So I wanted, I asked uh, Tanasi to uh, read a passage. So uh, this is a good moment. I'm curious what he picks. Well, this is good because this is the other side of the dream.
Oh, you know what? I'm going to start here because we were talking about things to tell your son. We live in a goal-oriented era. Our media vocabulary is full of hot takes, big ideas, and grand theories of everything. But some time ago, I rejected magic in all its forms. The rejection was a gift from your grandparents and was skeptical. I'm sorry, the, the, the rejection was a gift from your grandparents who never tried to console me with ideas of an afterlife and were skeptical of preordained American glory. In accepting both the chaos of history and the fact of my total end, I was free to truly consider how I wish to live, specifically, how do I live free in this black body? It is a profound question because America understands itself as God's handiwork, but the black body is the clearest evidence that America is the work of men. I have asked the question through my readings and writings, through the music of my youth, through arguments with your grandfather, with your mother, your Aunt Janae, your Uncle Ben. I have searched for answers in nationalist myths, in classrooms, out on the street, and on other continents. The question is unanswerable, which is not to say futile. The great reward of this constant interrogation, of confrontation with the brutality of my country, is that it has freed me from ghosts and girded me against the sheer terror of disembodiment. And I am afraid. I feel the fear most acutely whenever you leave me, but I was afraid long before you, and in this I was unoriginal. When I was your age, the only people I knew were black, and all of them were powerfully, adamantly, dangerously afraid. I had seen this fear all my young life, though I had not always recognized it as such. It was always right in front of me. The fear was there in the extravagant boys of my neighborhood, in their large rings and medallions, their big puffy coats and full-length fur-colored leathers, which was their armor against their world. They would stand on the corner of Gwyn Oak and Liberty or Cold Spring and Park Heights or outside Mondarmin Mall with their hands dipped in Russell sweats. I think back on those boys now and all I see is fear and all I see is them girding themselves against the ghosts of the bad old days when the Mississippi mob gathered round their grandfathers so that the branches of the black body might be torched then cut away. The fear lived on in their practice bop, their slouching denim, their big t-shirts, the calculated angle of their baseball caps, a catalog of behaviors and garments enlisted to inspire the belief that these boys were in firm possession of everything they desired. I heard the fear in the first music I ever knew, the music that pumped from boom boxes full of grand boasts and bluster. The boys who stood out on Garrison and Liberty and up on Park Heights loved this music because it told them against all evidence and odds that they were masters of their own lives, their own streets, and their own bodies. I saw it in the girls, in their loud laughter, in their gilded bamboo earrings that announced their names thrice over. And I saw it in their brutal language and hard gaze, how they would cut you with their eyes and destroy you with their words for the sin of playing too much. Keep my name out of your mouth, they would say. I would watch them after school, how they squared off like boxes Vaseline up, earrings off, Reeboks on, and leapt at each other. I think one of the uh, most striking uses of the concept of fear is that it completely inverts 
what our media and popular discourse make of young black people in our poorest communities, right, isolated. Which is rage. Which rage, is rage. Rage is what people Which say. is fearlessness, which, right, is, which right. is an untrammeled danger right. and threat to all. Right. Uh, you talk about your own journey with fear in Baltimore. Was that a particular insight in framing this concept? Because frankly, no writer that I know of uses fear in this way. I mean, you could partly say that the boast of blackness has always been its ability to dissemble one's mm -hmm. fears mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, for the purposes mm -hmm. of survival. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's partly what you're describing. So you're, was it your own experience that it inspired you to think of it this way? Yeah, I mean, I think as a young man uh, in Baltimore, I was afraid of everybody else. And then when I left, I realized that they were afraid too. That even the things that I thought of as power were fear. Um, the, the violence, you know, which I, I think about all the time, which I, I just have a, a much greater capacity to understand now as logical, as sensible. Um, everybody was scared about what was going to happen to somebody on their block. And the best way to protect your block and this is going to sound crazy. I mean, it's going to sound crazy. The best way to protect your block was to go out and do violence against somebody else and then establish a reputation for your block so that nobody messed with you. Um, the best way to protect yourself was to project this untrammeled you know, notion uh, that, that, that you just talked about, this almost superhumanity. Um, the best way to gird yourself against you know, the violence of you know, all young boys around me was to pretend that you know, at, at a moment's notice, you, know, you, you would take somebody out. Right. What, what, what is scary about this? And I, you know, I was thinking about this when I was doing the mass incarceration piece. You know, I was in Detroit talking to this brother, and he was telling me about the rules. And I got that the rules that he was outlining for living in prison were just the rules of the block like intensified. Mm -hmm. That in fact, that it was just the neighborhood, but just like times 100. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that like when he was, it did not sound crazy to me. It did not sound unfamiliar to me, and you know, he was making a point about how they, they primed you in the neighborhood <laughs> with, with those laws. And by the time you get to prison, you know, it's like graduation, you know, but it's still school. Yeah. You know, it's still the basic rules of school. So you, you talk also about fear in the way that, that you were raised and also the way that other friends were raised. And, right. And so talk a little bit about your father's own relationship to this generalized fear of, of, of history catching up with you, of the neighborhood catching up with you, of police officers? Well, cor cor I mean, corporal punishment is, is like a theme in here. And um, we are in an era, I think, um, where the, you know, the country has turned away from corporal punishment. I'm living in France, and they have not caught up. They are not there yet. <laughs> they are not. So if you think it's anything black about putting your hands on your kids, you should go to other parts of the world. Uh, there's nothing black about it at all. Um, but, you know, we, you know we're, we're turning away from that. I, I think that's a good thing. But one of the things that happens is, is, you know, as we turn against certain practices, we tend to view other people as though they are backwards. And, you know, we apply labels to them. Um, you know, and I'll just go out on a limb and say this. You know, one of those labels is abuse uh, to people. And those labels become much more important than actually trying to understand what's actually going on. Yeah. Um, People are afraid for their kids. And they would damn near kill their kids um, before they would let the forces around them kill their kids. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they are just so, so, so terrified. And I, you know, it was only after I got distance from my father, it was only after I got distance from my mother that I could really see. You know, there's a passage right after that where I talk about, you know, going into um, my, my grandmother's house uh, who lived in Philadelphia and feeling it, you know, in her hardness, in her brusqueness, and not, you know, recognizing it as fear at that time, but recognizing it as roughness. But then when I started pulling it together and I, and I started realizing I was talking to a woman who... Um, had lost my grandfather, my grandfather had died, had been killed, um, had lost two sons, they had been killed. And, and I thought about all of that grief and knowing that it had made the hardness make so much more sense. Mm-hmm. Like if that is your reality, if that's the frame you're living in, you know, um, attempting to ask black people or any group of people to adopt the manners of people who do not live under the same fear. Um, I think it's tough. I think it's tough. Um, which is not to say I would abandon the argument. Right. But I don't think the argument is rooted in putting labels on people. You know what I mean? And, you know, condescending towards people and wagging your finger uh, uh, towards people. Um, Speaking of finger wagging, one of your... <laughs> I can't help but make this uh, observation, but right. basically the article that brought you to uh, the attention of many readers was your own critique of Bill Cosby right. uh, back in 2007. Right. My right. oh my. Right. Yeah, I know. I ain't go far enough. <laughs> it's clear. It's clear. <laughs> Never again. Yeah. That's what I learned from that story. Um, it is a critique, but, um, you know, and I've written about this, so it's nothing for me to say this here. Um, I had a good sense that there was a lot more going on. Um, I was new to the Atlantic, you know, and I did not have the, the, the confidence. <laughs> I did not have, certainly did not have, you know, just the the character as a journalist, as a writer that I have now, mm-hmm. you know, um, that is a deeply shameful article for me. It really is. You yeah. know, um, it's just not hard enough. Well, well, we'll cut you some slack where you are now. So the, the, the experts in the Tamir Rice case mm-hmm. have recently weighed in. Tamir Rice it was the 12-year-old killed in Cleveland. Um, when police officers were called to the scene of someone waving a gun um, in the park. And later, uh, even that same caller said that he thought it might be uh, a toy gun. Mm -hmm. Police arrive on the scene. An officer disembarks from the vehicle and within two seconds shoots the diminutive, we're not talking about a very large 12-year-old, dead. Experts say falls within the bounds of the law. Yeah. Um, no one should be particularly surprised by that. Um, if you understand the history and, and the policy, particularly over the past 30 or 40 years, it is extremely hard to convict police officers of anything, much less lethal violence. These are decisions we've made you know, about how we're going to be policed and about how we're going to be, you know, uh, quote-unquote, kept safe. Um, it pissed me off, but I, I, you know, there's, there's no reason to be surprised by that. that. That is the system that you have right now. You know, uh, it allows for somebody to drive up and with two seconds to execute a 12-year-old boy. That, that is what the system is right now. Um, it allowed for, you know, John Crawford, you know, in Walmart. I don't know how quick, but it was quick. It was quick. I mean, in an open carry state, by the way. Right. You know, John Crawford state, was, was shopping um, in Walmart. And right holding merchandise in the aisle that happened to be a rifle, but right. in a store that sells rifle and ammunition, this should have been normal fare. And they just ran in and shot him. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, he was literally holding the merchandise in an open carry state, and they shot him. And there was no prosecution. That, that is the truth of your country. Um, and I think, like, any sort of reform or any hope of reform begins after accepting that and then moving forward. Because this process that we go through over and over again, where we have to be reminded over and over again that the courts are, you know, a, a certain way, that this policy is a certain way, and we actually hope, you know, for some sort of justice. I, I don't know what that can be logically attached to. I think you actually, so you talked to Samari uh, early on about Tamir Rice, which is why we're talking about mm -hmm. it. Uh, and you talk about the sadness that he expresses uh, in the cases of Michael Brown's killing, of Tamir Rice's killing, and you name uh, Eric Garner as right. well. But your solution seems not to turn on any police reforms or trainings or cultural yeah, competency. Right. It seems like what you're saying to your son goes a lot deeper, and well, maybe to all of us. I mean, all of that's cool. Like, all of that are, are things that, that should happen. Um, Prince Jones was killed by an African-American police officer who was employed uh, by a municipality that at This that, is your friend from Prince Jones. Yes, my, yes forgive me, my, my, my friend uh, from Howard. He was killed by an African-American police officer who was employed by a municipality uh, that had an African-American executive, that had plenty of African-Americans on the county council, that was at that time, I believe, the wealthiest African-American municipality in the country. It was the only municipality in the country that had become wealthier as it had become blacker. He was still killed. I mean, what, what sort of cultural training and diversity was going to help that? You know? Um, so there was something deeper there. It was, what was deeper there was our laws around policing, number one, our perspective on who black people are, number two, allow for the fact that, you know, a gentleman who was much, much shorter, who did not look anything like Prince Jones, could be, that, that, that they could be conflated with the two. When they ran my friend's tags, the tags didn't come up as his own. They came up uh, from Mabel Jones, who was his mother who was living in Philadelphia. It is very, very hard for me to believe that if he was not African-American, they would not have immediately, you know, went to, okay, it might have been stolen. Like, that would have been a red flag, you know, in, in, any, in anyone else's mind. But they went right to criminality with this guy. Went right, he didn't look anything like the suspect. Um, it's not enough to diversify, it's not enough to culture, because, see, you, you don't deal with the fact that the reason why the police are acting this way it's because of laws and policies that went through the democratic process. You let the people off the hook when you focus too much on the police. I, I really, really believe this. I mean, I'm sorry that it looks like that that, that uh, gentleman, uh, in the case of Tamir Rice, is, is not going to face justice. I am sorry, and I just believe this. I am sorry that in my head I really have the assumption that, you know, uh, those officers who are being held uh, responsible for Freddie Gray's murder will not be convicted. Um, but the bigger notion is that Freddie Gray looked at an officer and ran, and that was enough to arrest him. Mm -hmm. That is not enough to arrest somebody on the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. That's a policy decision. That's a policy decision that we made about a quote-unquote high drug area. It's not a, you know, a guns decision. It's not a high murder decision. It's a, it's a decision we made in terms of the drug. And so to focus in on what the cops did, but see, why are the cops dead? Mm -hmm. Who gave, and I'm not, you know, calling for the, you know, like the complete, you know, abandonment of policing in our communities, but who said that was okay? 
Who said it was okay to look at somebody and the person runs and they can be detained, their freedom can be taken away? When did that become okay? And that's on us. Right. That, that's on Americans. That can't be, you know, uh, you know, just put on like, oh, well, you know, if we train a police officer, everything will be okay. No, that, that, that is not enough. I, I think it lets us off the hook. So to get, to get deeper to that point, I think what you're saying, in addition to what you've just articulated here, is that we can't get to a solution but through a full reconciliation with our history. Yes. And that is the power of, or half the power of reparations, as far as I'm concerned. I, I just... I mean, uh, Khalil, I mean, you, you, you know this. I mean, uh, Khalil wrote, wrote a very, very powerful book, The Condemnation of Blackness. And it's, a, um, yes, please clap. Please clap. And, and buy it, you know, buy, buy the book. <laughs> and give that to your 15-year-old if this doesn't work. If this don't work, oh, give both of them to your 15-year-old, you know. Um, Khalil's book is much more hopeful. <laughs> It's the thing that always gets me. I said, you're not, you're not full of hope. I said, you read any historians, man? So you think they're full of hope? <laughs> Jesus. Well. Um, so one, one, of Khalil's, you know, one of the phenomenal things that Khalil does in that book is he historicizes this notion of people believing you know, in the criminality of black people and using that, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, you know, as, as an answer against policy. You know, somebody argues for something. They say, well, if they don't stop, you know... Um, well, today it's black-on-black black crime. You know, you say, I want to reform the police. They say, well, why don't you get rid of black-on-black black crime? And what you start to get is how old that actually is. You know, um, and, and, you know, that's in close. And see, if you can't reconcile yourself to that fact, right. you will not realize how bone-deep the thing is that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll think that, you know, hey, we can just reform a couple cops and it'll be okay. We have some diversity training. It'll be okay. Because, see, you think it started in 1965. Right. You don't understand, it's at the roots of your country. Right. You know, you're underestimating what you're up against. Yeah. You say to Samari, and you know now, if you did not know before, that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. So it does not matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. It does not matter if it originates in a misunderstanding. It does not matter if the destruction springs from a foolish policy. Sell cigarettes without property authority and your body can be destroyed. Turn into a dark stairwell and your body can be destroyed. The destroyers will rarely be held accountable. Mostly, they will receive pensions. Damn. I mean, I said, I mean, I, that is, you know, I mean, I, I thank you, but I feel like it's just sort of naming the obvious. Yeah. I mean, that, that is what happened with, with Prince Jones. I mean, uh, that is what happened with Amadou Diallo. That is what's going to happen with Eric Garner. That is probably what's going to happen with Tamir Rice. I mean, these are... I was looking at, you know, the Walter Scott case, which people think is a slam dunk, and I hope y'all are right. Walter Scott in Charleston shot in the back. That's right. And his lawyer's defense is, no, no, the tape doesn't actually reveal the whole thing. They were in a struggle. This guy had just committed three or four uh, felonies by assaulting a police officer, and he pivoted, and he shot him because he was afraid. He had no way of knowing what he was going to do when he pivoted. 18 feet away. 18 feet away. Right. He might have had a gun. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I mean, that's, that's the art. He might have had a gun. How do I know he doesn't have a gun? Right. You know? Um, I hope the right thing happens in that trial. Yeah. No one should be uh, entirely confident that it will. You, um, I want to come back to Baldwin because there's a passage in Baldwin, and I'm going to let you read it. Uh, it's highlighted here. It starts okay. with after Baldwin, um, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. 
just that paragraph. I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. And I know which is much worse. And this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. One can, one can be indeed, one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death, for this is what most of mankind has been best at since we, since, best at since we have heard of man, excuse me. But remember, most of mankind is not all of mankind. But it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Yeah, that was a huge part in this book. It is the innocence which, con you, like, you don't have a right to not know. I mean, perhaps, you know, you can't make America into the land of milk and honey. Perhaps there's, you know, some amount of violence that is always essential to society. Perhaps there is some amount of injustice, you know, that is, you know, essential to any sort of working state. Maybe that's ultimately true. But for you to turn around and look at me like you don't know, mm. like you're innocent, like you're clean, like you are not, you know, down here in the mud, that, that, that is the crime. The crime is not, you know, being human. The crime is not making mistakes. The crime is not, and the crime is not even founding a country on white supremacy. You know, I mean, I suspect if you go deep enough into, you know, the history of any state, you will find some great injustice perpetrated on another group of people. The crime is to look at me and be like, wasn't me. Right. You know, it wasn't me. That's the right. crime. Yeah. That really is the crime. So the Baldwin comparison does, though, break down. Uh, so mm -hmm. first of all, that was from The Fire Next Time, and uh, a quote that has uh, also inspired my own thinking and work. Uh, but, but the Baldwin comparison does break down in this one way, mm -hmm. and I want, I want you to talk about it. Uh, he was a man who grew up in the church. Mm -hmm. yeah. So unlike Sweet. yourself, yep. who grew up in an atheist household, right. at least as I interpret Agnostic. it. Agnostic. Agnostic, okay. they would say. My um, dad I would not say that. <laughs> he's, he's got a little insurance policy yeah, just in case. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm good. Um, so the religiosity that frames all of Baldwin's work is absent. Uh -huh. And obviously that makes some readers uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, but you really are taking on, in this way, my students and I have been wrestling with this, is this a particular approach to history essentially rejects the most dominant frame of African-American historiosity, right. right? That there's, there really is no meta-narrative of the black past that doesn't run through the black church, That's right. or doesn't run through suffering, or doesn't run through an exodus story. Right. So where does that leave us? I, I don't know, but I've always felt alienated from that. You know, and I, I can only write out of my heart. And, um, you know, I'm black, I'm African-American. There is so much about being African-American and African-American politics that I don't understand, primarily because in my household, Malcolm X was Jesus. <laughs> you know, and so your, your, your orientation is, I mean, and that's like, again, that's at the root of this book, you know, like the, the stress on the body, you know, Malcolm's belief, um, his anger, his rage, you know, as seeing, you know, uh, black people beat in the street and dogs sipped on black people, said to me, the black body, your body, is precious. Your life is as precious as anyone. And you should not give up your life, and you should not give up your body uh, for rights that are already written in the Constitution, that it's wrong. 
that is strong. Now, you know, it may be as a, as a matter of real politics that that's actually what had to happen. But I have never parted with the sense that it was wrong. You know, I've, I've been talking about this, like, um, I can't watch, like, the 50th anniversary of the Selma campaign in the same way as other people. Um, I, I can't even watch the movie Selma in, in the same way as other people. I, I can't, I mean, I love, you know, King's speech, you know, how long, not long. I love that speech. I can't feel happy, though. I can't share in the, um, the sense of triumph and hope that comes out of it. Because when I see those cops rush those folks for wanting to walk across a bridge, I just think it never should have came to that. Like, it just, like, how, how did it even come to that? Like, it was wrong. Bloody mm -hmm. Sunday was wrong, you know? Um, and the redemptive story, I mean, just to Yeah, so I, just, I can't, I can't right. be redeemed, you know, by, no. by John Lewis's, you know, Sterling career afterwards. Um, those four little girls were killed. And for me, there's no afterlife to make that. Oh, I'm not going to see them. Some, this is you know, my belief system. I'm not going to see them somewhere else. Their bodies were destroyed by somebody. And no law that came afterwards, no uh, 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 march that came afterwards can make me okay with that. I, I, I can't draw anything out of my friend Prince Jones's death, except, frankly, a, you know, a, a great deal of anger. Perhaps some understanding about the world I live in, but I, I can't be, this book does not redeem him. This is not redemption. You know, this is not, Prince Jones did not die for this book. Prince Jones was killed um, mere feet away from his fiance's house. Uh, his young daughter you know, was, was rendered fatherless. And I don't want people to forget that. I don't want that to be obscured by, forgive me if I, I offend anybody here, by, by spirituals by gospels, by some sense that, you know, the arc of history ultimately will reward us. If your life ends, that's where your arc ends. And that is a tremendous tragedy. And um, when, I, when I see, you know, like, like the forgiveness, you know, around the Dylan Roof piece in Charleston, yeah. I, I understand it from the perspective of not living your life filled with hate and not allowing hate to consume you. I, I, I have that. But when I see people in power, you know, them praising that, like, you got nothing to say about that, Nikki Haley. Don't even talk. Don't even talk. Because as long as that, as long as that Confederate flag was up there, and anybody in that state, anybody in America who ever flew that Confederate, you are complicit in that death. You are part of it. You know, and so I just, um, I can't access that. You know what I mean? I, I'm sorry I can't access it. I'm not, you know, bragging because I think it's like there's some profound truths about African-American life that I actually don't understand that would probably enrich my work. But, you know, all I really have and the only place I can really write from is, is my individual experience. And I, I just, I, I don't feel redeemed by it. I don't, like, Martin Luther King was shot in the head. That shouldn't have happened. It's horrible that that happened, you know? Um, well, it makes sense, uh, Tanasi, when your framework is a history of plunder. Mm -hmm. So if, if people die in the interest of conquest or self-referential justifications in the name of Christianity or Islam um, or some other ideology that justifies dehumanizing a group of people, um, then it really is about the set of beliefs that come second mm -hmm. to the act itself, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is, I think, your point. Yeah. That we control the things that we do. Right. We then layer on ideas that justify the things that we do. Right, right, right. I think that um, the, there's an amazing, one of the most 
moving passages uh, in the book, and it's been written about by, by reviewers. Um, and I was surprised because I read it first in a review later in the book, and I was surprised by just how short it was. Mm -hmm. But it's the story of the enslaved woman that you humanize. Right. Uh, and and you, you talk about a spot on the ground in the woods that was right. her favorite spot as she right. went to gather um, things for, for the household that she served. But you also say something about the life that she gave up. Mm -hmm. And I just want you to talk about that in, in, in the way in which you describe that she didn't, I don't want to finish the thought. No, no, no. She, I mean, she didn't sign up for this. No, no, no. <laughs> and um, again, I think this comes out of this sort of shorthand and footnotes that's, and, and I guess like part of my work is to try to you know, pull this apart um, to make people you know, live in, in the moment for a second. But the shorthand that we've developed about black suffering in, in this country, um, again, that somehow it's okay. You know, it, it's okay because it you know, makes America a better, more human place. It, but black people don't sign up to be martyrs. Right, right. You know, and it's, you know, like the, the example I use in it, you know, these are not people who signed up to be a part of your grand narrative. No, you have to focus in on that individual who liked and loved certain things, who was annoyed and hated certain things. Um, who and who was, had a favorite sibling. Who had a, you know, a favorite <laughs> sibling. You know, exactly. Who, you know, understood that the person that she worked for, you know, who, was in, or she, who she was enslaved by, was actually not as intelligent as she was and just had to live with that. And that was just the facts, you know, of, of, of her life. That's what stripped away. It is your individual personhood. It is your individual desires, your dreams, you know, all the things that, that, that you want out of your life stripped away, you know, uh, for the interest of plunder, for the interest of somebody else, to benefit, you know, uh, uh, somebody else. And so I, I think, like, we, 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 you know, we skip over this stuff. You know, slavery's 250 years, man. I mean, that's generation and generation. That's person, 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 person. And I think it helps every now and then to just focus in on, let's just think about one of them for a second. Yeah. You know, as opposed to the number. Yeah, we, we read uh, uh, Leon Litwack's uh, Been in the Storm so mm -hmm. long recently. Uh, and this is one of the first, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning work, Pulitzer Prize winning work of history. Uh, that masterfully uses the WPA slave narratives mm -hmm. uh, to give voice to the experience of enslaved people mm -hmm. uh, in the years that the Civil War are unfolding. And we read that the week after we read your book, and mm -hmm. we really appreciated um, how you captured the essence of what Litwack attempted to do, right. which was to give humanity, to, to give flesh to the bones of people who we know uh, by the millions, right. lost their lives over the course of 250 years to right. this institution right. that we now look in shame at as if it wasn't the engine that made America what she is mm -hmm. in the world today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, you're exactly right. There's a, you use this vessel me me metaphor uh, to, with Samari um, in reference to Jordan Davis and Trayvon Martin as young men not too much older than your own son as kind of a final way for him to think about the preciousness of life. If you could share it with Sure, I, you know, I, I tell him that, you know, um, children are vessels that parents put things in. You know, and under the best circumstances, they put a great deal of, of, of positive things into them. Um, we invest in our children, you know. Uh, we invest, you know, in them to have, to have music lessons. 
We shuttle around their friends uh, to you know soccer practice and soccer games. We take them for play dates. We put them. We try to get them in the schools where we think you know that their education would be benefited. We hire them tutors. We take them on vacation, and we do this to cultivate our children. And you know, I, this. I hope this doesn't come across as crass, but when somebody kills your child. You know, they have taken you know, your most precious investment they've just shattered it on the ground. And in the case of all these people, as far as I was concerned, what American policy had done was shattered these lives on the ground and then looked at the parents like, what? What? You know? Um, it was a tr- just a tremendous tragedy. And to, to put those pieces back together with naming the tragedies of Martin and Davis, Mm -hmm. I think you're also telling us that the tragedies of when a young man in Baltimore takes the life of another young man. It's the same. It's no different. And it can't be separated. And the attempt to separate out the violence committed uh, by agents of the state from a hyper level of violence that is the result of the policies of the state is a huge, huge mistake. So it's just, you know, um, the agent pulling the trigger, you know, is not important to me. You know, you have to look back past that. I think police violence is significant in the fact that you pay your taxes to be protected by police. And when they don't do that, that, you know, hits us in a significant way. Um, But at the same time, I think it's much more important to see the policy behind it. We we should not be afraid to talk about the violence that happens in African-American communities. There's, you know... um, it is symptomatic of the oppression. So by any literary standards, the MacArthur genius means you have reached the pinnacle of success as a writer and a journalist. You're a genius now, right? Not even close. (laughs) I hope not. I hope this ain't the pinnacle. (laughs) I hope not. And I guess uh, before we open it up to a few questions, I wanted to know what you make of this moment of arrival, of this acceptance of your voice in a time when it's not entirely clear that people are fully prepared to sign off on what you've written. What do you make of this moment? Um, you know, uh, what I make of this moment is I got to get back to work. Um, I just um, I don't know you know Khalil I would be in conversation with you anytime Um, but if somebody said you know what this whole tour thing is done you can go right I would take that (laughs) I would take that in a minute Um, and it's not just you know out of selflessness for what I think the 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 the, um, the writing does. I, you know, I believe in writing. Like, I believe in that as a life, as, as a commitment. I deeply, deeply enjoy it. I find it tremendously pleasurable. Um, you know, I, I'm just happy that, you know, somebody recognized that. Somebody was willing to invest in it to allow me to do more of it. Um, does it make you hopeful, though? That's, that, to me, is the real question. For what? Well, there's the question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am happy that I am, I, am, I am being personally recognized. That has very little to do with the issues I'm talking about. Um, I am talking about broad systemic issues. We live in an era right now in which if there was you know, any one change between today 
and Jim Crow. It is that it is certainly possible for African Americans to achieve the, the, the pinnacle, individual African Americans, to achieve the pinnacle of success in, in this society. That, that, you know, that, that is a huge, huge difference, right? You, know, you couldn't have a Barack Obama 50 years ago. But I, I don't write on behalf of individuals. You know, I'm not thinking about just individuals who can achieve certain things, because the fact of the matter is, even as, as that's true, your child can be killed. Your child can be taken from you, you know, in a way that is just not true for other folks. And so um, I'm, I'm happy to be recognized, but that just charges me to go out and really, you know, frankly, to do something greater um, than this book. You know, that, that really is how I see it, you know. Um, the great Gwen Eiffel sent me a nice tweet. She said, congratulations, now get back to work. <laughs> That's true. All right, so That's I have one, one final thought about this. Um, he uses this blanket metaphor about covering oneself mm -hmm. in a blanket to hide uh, from the truth of this history. Mm -hmm. And so I thought at the beginning of the story that maybe it was a Snuggie. Uh, <laughs> and now that you've won the MacArthur, I'm convinced that maybe it's a Williams and Sonoma blanket. Maybe so. so. <laughs> it's a better blanket maybe that so. you can hide maybe under every so. now and then. <laughs> All right, Tanahasi Coates. Thank you, guys. Thank you. When I had the thought that we might not do questions because I knew that you would have two hours to talk to each other, both Khalil and Tanahasi said, no, please questions, but let them be brilliant. So they didn't say anything of that sort, but I'd like to invite people who have questions to come up to the microphone and really ask questions, which in my experience can be asked in about 50 seconds. So thanks, thanks, Mr. Optimistic, for uh, <laughs> sharing. Um, uh, three things, and you can ignore them, or take just one of them, or address all of them. Um, one, uh, it's interesting, your absence of religious background and the notion that the redemptive story within the African-American community is, is somehow a natural response to oppression when there, in fact, is no such redemptive religious story amongst the Aztecs and the uh, the uh, Peruvians who were uh, slaughtered in the Spanish conquest. Um, so there's certainly some precedent for that. But I wonder if you could uh, critique your sense of skepticism about the redemptive religious construct within the African-American community and the uh, sense of uh, exceptionalism in American political discourse. Are they equal myths that need to be broken down? Are they separate myths and fundamentally different? Um, uh, secondly, uh, you mentioned corporal punishment. Do you have a comment on the Adrian Peterson case and the way that the media handled it, not the way the justice system handled it, uh, per se? And uh, do you think it's possible for America to jettison its sense of exceptionalism in its political discourse as we enter into the 2016 uh, candidacy or 2016 cycle, and we're going to hear, we're going to hear in all of the rhetoric that we are the greatest country on the planet. Okay, thank you. 
I got your notes if you need them. Okay. Um, so the first question is easy, no. Um, no, I don't think it's possible to jettison that uh, exceptionalism. Uh, the second question about Adrian Peterson, I think the case was covered by a lot of people who um, are just unfamiliar with the world. That doesn't mean what Adrian Peterson did was okay, by the way. Uh, it was not. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who are commenting who just don't, don't understand that world uh, of where he's coming from. Um, I think uh, in terms of the first question, no, I don't think those are equal myths. Um, I think one is the myth of people who are trying to survive uh, with the boot under their, on their neck. And I think the other is uh, the myth of a group of people or society that is trying to justify the boot being on the neck. Um, I think they're totally different. New York City is the second most segregated, residentially segregated city in the country. And one of the ways that the city bakes that in today is that half of all the affordable housing that gets built is reserved for people who already live in a neighborhood. So what would you say to people who come back and uh, their response is, wait a minute, that neighborhood belongs to me. And is your response different if the person is saying that from a white neighborhood, a black neighborhood, or a Latino neighborhood? Well, you know, Less than 50 seconds. I'm certainly not an expert on uh, uh, affordable housing in, in New York. I haven't really looked at that too much. Um, but I, I can answer the second half. Of course it's different. You know, of course it, it's different. Again, white people and black people are not the... Uh, you know, two, two equal sides of a coin. Black America is not a photo negative of white America. Um, when black people speak about Harlem being theirs, it's much the same way that, like, a, you know, folks with Chinese immigrants might speak of Chinatown belonging to them, or Little Italy belonging to the Italians. It is not um, the same kind of claim. Um, in terms of the other question, I'm sorry, I just don't have the knowledge to really answer in any effective way. How do, how do you get rid of the segregation if you leave a lot of it alone? I guess you don't. But I'm concerned about my ability to answer your question specifically about affordable housing, because I've done no reporting on that at all. Hi, good evening. Hi. So my question is a lot more of a modern question. It goes to the roots of what you're talking about. We're a few blocks away from the Richard Rogers Theater, which um, has Hamilton, right? And so when we talk about our roots, and you're talking about going really deep in it, we have a show that is now populated with people of color um, and talking about history has its eyes on you and yet it's people of color saying that through, it, it's a weird show, right? There's a discomfort for me and I just always wonder like, I read the book this year and I'm just thinking, what are your thoughts on, on the show? Um, I'm such a disappointment, I haven't seen the show. What? <laughs> this is like, and you know what? I haven't listened to Kendrick Lamar's second album either. What? And I didn't see, and I saw Mad Max really late. And I'm just, you know, I, one of the, and I'm not taking this out on you, but one of the problems is, um, if there's anything, God, I'm going to complain. Um, if there's anything I resent, not just about this book, but about any sort of success that um, I have achieved as a writer, and I blame this on people that came before me, actually. I'm just going to, now I'm going to come on, but other writers. Writers and quote-unquote public intellectuals sit up 
in spaces like this, and they have an opinion on everything. And they pretend that it's an informed opinion on everything. I knew it. I know, I know a lot about what I know. It, it should not be a, a shock to you that I have not seen her. It's just impossible for me to know everything. Um, it's just not possible. It's not, and it's not even, listen, listen, it's not even possible for you to know everything about that which I, I care about. Obviously, I care about affordable housing. Obviously, I care about history and I care about art. I just ain't there yet. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, people who sit up here and answer the question, they're not there yet either. You know? Um, and so I just, please don't be surprised. You know what I mean? Like, like part of the, the best part about writing is that I'm, you're actually a student. You actually are a student. That's actually what you're doing. I mean, that was like what a big part of this conversation was. It was outlining studies. Um, I am not anybody's leader. I am not anybody's specialist. I am not, I even reject, I would even reject the term public intellectual. I don't like any of that. You know, I wrote a book. It did really well. I'm happy about that. I'm happy it moved you. But that really is the end of it. That's all I have. That's all I got. Well, hello, my name is Akira Charles. Nice to meet Hi. you, I thought you did a great job. And I guess my question just stems on, you, your book focused so much on the black body and before I came in the room, I was just like, where's the community? Where are these um, disadvantaged black bodies in which you're talking about? Why aren't they like taking up the space here and listening and what, what you're trying to say? And I think another thing too, with forming into a question, is just this whole idea of the black body just dies. And I think for me, as I look at myself as a black body, as a phoenix, I am constantly dying a million deaths every day. And just this whole idea of like our suffering is just, just a suffering as opposed to seeing it, seeing black bodies die on a constant. And I think for me, once I read your book, it was just this, for me, what I got out of it was just this whole idea of black liberation that's connected to a male-centered narrative that is popular and that's why it's selling because it's talking about a narrative that everybody wants to know. We want to hear about black male exceptionalism. We want to hear about these dominant narratives that oftentimes take up space, not saying that black men aren't victimized by a whole bunch of isms within America, but just this whole concept of how can we understand the black body, but understand it in a framework of what the black body or maybe the black male body is doing within the community and also how it's affected by other systemic issues involved with it. So I think for me, it's just clarifying whether your take on a book comes from a nationalistic perspective that is often narrow and focused on male-centered issues. So. Well, I'll, I'll you know, answer the, the second part and I'll go to the first part. Um, I wish that had been true for my first book, um, which was even more male-centered than this one. I was a father, two sons, nobody read that. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how eager people are to, to accept that. Um, do you write? I do. Beautiful. Um, how old are you? I'm 20. Beautiful, even more beautiful. <laughs> this is um, 150 pages. Yeah, I had to read it for my Black Lives Matter class at NYU. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry it was assigned to you. I really am. I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I'm sorry you didn't just find it on your own. I'm sorry it was assigned to you. Um, this is an 150-page book. It is limited by who I am. It is not a stand-in for the black experience. It is not even a stand-in for the entirety of how black people 
interact with the world physically through their bodies. It was never meant to be that. It should not be that. Um, I don't say that to duck responsibility. I say that, that if you are looking for one book to cover the broadness, and you know, that's one of the things I do talk about in the book, the broadness, the richness of the black experience, the black diaspora experience, African-American experience across the board, if you're looking for that in one book, you're going to lose every time. Um, I understand that this book has been elevated by certain people to be that way. That is not what I wrote. Um, I, I have only, you know, what I have. Um, my hope is that there'll be more books. That's always been my hope, you know. Um, I don't want to be a stand-in for black people. I don't want to be a representative. Um, you find this narrative to be uh, too male-centered. That's fine. That's okay. That just means we need more narratives. Yes. That's all that means. Um, and in terms of... And, and in terms of spaces, you know, I can't speak for, you know, New York Public Library, but what I, what I would tell you is not to mistake one space for all spaces. Um, first place we went when this book came out in mid-July, African-American uh, church in my hometown of Baltimore. Um, last week, you know, I was at my mom's uh, high school um, out, you know, in Baltimore, Maryland, speaking, you know, before, I, you know, a predominantly African-American audience of students. The very next day, I was at Howard University. Um, Historically black college, you know, where it was the freshman read. I talked to, you know, two different groups, hour and a half each time, and then had, you know, a, a big, you know, sort of thing at the end of the day. So, um, and then I'm going to be at the Schaumburg. I'm going to be at the Schaumburg. So don't, you know, don't make the mistake of looking at one audience and thinking that is the audience. I know, you know? but since you already made it, some people look at you and say, well, you look for you as the answer for the black Right, but that's on them. That's on them. Thank that's, you for that's, your... that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm giving you. Have you heard me say that? No, but I'm just saying, with just spaces of just looking at this tokenized black male, and someone's like, okay, he's going to talk about all the black issues, and it's just like, there's a somewhat of a responsibility now that you have all of these people here, that you need to talk, need to somewhat Absolutely not. Yeah. I'm a writer. Absolutely not. And I hope you don't do that either. No, I mean, you as a writer. I'm I hope that never happens. I'm like, I'm not, not speaking for them, but maybe... It will destroy your writing, and it will destroy you. You can't represent... I mean, you just can't. You can't. You need a community. You need yeah, a, you a group. You need a lineage. You need a family. You know, you can't look for one person to do that ever, because the writing will just be much. It'll mean nothing. Hit them up on Twitter to continue the conversation. <laughs> and I indulge it because it's important. Like I said, it's an important conversation. You know, but don't mistake what other people are putting on the book for the book itself. All right, thank you so much. Let, let's take a few more very short questions. Sorry, that's my fault. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, uh, this is maybe not a great question to follow that, but um, I am giving a presentation on you, which is not something I've ever said to anyone before, but it is... It's um, never anything I've heard from anyone. <laughs> um, it is, but it is specifically on you your work, your perspective, your writing to a group of psychologists in training um, in the interest of training um, culturally sensitive, culturally competent people who are capable of working with a broad array of individuals from diverse backgrounds. And so I was wondering, just you, uh, not anyone else, just you, um, if there was anything in particular either from the book or your other writing or your personal experience that you might like to see people who are in helping positions um, emphasize or understand better. 
Well, um, just following on the last question, I just hope it doesn't end with me. Um, I would, the presentation probably shouldn't be on me. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, and to follow that last question, um, it should be much broader than that. You know, um, I've been writing for 20 years, and right now it's hot, you know, and one day it won't be hot, you know? Um, but everything in this book, everything in my work was built on other people, you know, other scholars, like, like my friend here, you know, Khalil. Um, it wasn't like magic. You know, it wasn't even intelligent. It's not even intelligent. It's not a particular wisdom that's greater than other people. You know, I, I exist within a community. And so um, I think it's always a mistake to, like, focus on one person like that. I'm not even just saying for me. I just think it's a mistake. I will, I will say that in the presentation. <laughs> and it, just so one more thing. In, in the interest of time, the line is now closed, and we're going to respect the end time, which is 9. So that gives us about 13 minutes for everyone, just so you know. Okay. Yeah. Hi, good evening. Um, in your book earlier, you talked about how the streets in your school were very parallel. And I was hoping that you can mention how and if that has changed today and how young black kids can navigate these structures. Repeat the question, because I'm not sure everyone heard. The, the question was, uh, in the book I talk about the streets and schools are parallel. I believe their arms are the same beast, that's what I say. Mm -hmm. And then um, the question is, how can young black kids navigate? Mm -hmm. um, I don't have good advice on navigating. I, ju I just don't. I don't know that I even reached the place at the end of the book where I could say, hey, here's how you get out, here's how you get through. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all I can say is what worked for me. And what worked for me was taking um, ownership of my own education um, and embracing, as I say in the book, you know, just this idea of struggle, of life through struggle, which does not mean, you know, you will, you know, do X, Y, and Z and, and, and the clouds will part. Um, you take every day at a time. That is um, deeply insufficient and uninspiring advice. <laughs> but this is not an advice book. Yeah. It's not a handbook, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't. You know, that, that's not what I wrote. Mm -hmm. But to your credit, I think part of what you're saying is the search for simple solutions and inspiration is not only underwriting the dream, but is also mm. destroying lives. Yeah. That our unwillingness to confront the finality of the choices that we make in everything that we do right. is the, the challenge that is right in front of us, rather than something that we might package and market uh, as something that we can opt into when, in mm -hmm. fact, we know that that opting in is really opting out. Thank you, Kalil. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We're a community. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Good evening. Hi. In the case for reparations, you talk about redlining. And redlining certainly undermined the communities here in New York and specifically Southeast Queens. Um, redlining took down that community that, according to Ebony Magazine in the 1950s and 60s, had the largest black middle class community in the entire country. Then, when it started to rebound after CRA, in the early or in the late 1990s, um, the subprime mortgage debacle happened. And once again, after some modest community revitalization, it started to decline. My question is that with the subprime mortgage debacle, lots of foreclosures occurred. Many people lost 
their property. Many people lost value in their property. What do we do about institutional racism that's here and now? What do we do to protect our communities? And are there elected officials that are on this case with regard to housing? Well, I don't think you'll be able to do anything until there's a grand policy change. I, I just don't believe it. I think actually the answer is right in your question. If this keeps happening repeatedly, and you mentioned after CRA, which was right. supposed to make up for, uh, uh, you know, all the red, you know, in part the red line that you were actually talking about, and yet it happened again. And it didn't even happen like implicitly. It happened like with Wells Fargo literally shopping what they were calling internally ghetto loans. And referring to, I mean, just the most base kind of discrimination, like straight out of the 1950s that, you, that you'd ever want to see. As long as black people occupy a certain social stratum, and as long as there's money to be made off of exploiting people who do not have access uh, to the same sort of possibilities that other people have access to, this will continue. This will, I, it's very hard for me to imagine, you know, a, a world without this happening again, as long as black people have, you know, what, for every wealth, um, for every dollar of wealth a white family has, black family has a nickel. And then on top of that, you are segregated by policy. As long as that's okay, you know, and as long as there's no sort of big government, and I use that not as a dirty phrase, but as an intentional phrase, big government commitment um, to integration, not because it's nice to sit next to white people, I mean, that's nice too, but because segregation is really the fencing off of people to exploit them. As, you know, as long as it's not, you know, as long as that has not permeated the policy, I, I hate to tell you, I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll happen again. There's money to be made by doing it. Understood. I'm so sorry to say we're going to take two more questions. Hello. Hi. Um, I guess I just wanted to ask you where you stand on whether or not black art and, um, or art written by black and uh, African American writers, um, um, are, is political, or is, and yeah, yeah. Oh, my art is political. Yeah. That's probably about the best I can do. <laughs> I guess, and I guess like more generally than like, is all, like with, with its history, I guess, and like with, um, yeah, with its history, is all black art political? <laughs> and I maybe- mean, I, I, I don't know, I mean, that's like tough yeah. to answer, right? Um, no, ex exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I, don't, I can only speak for what I do, you know, and what, what I'm attracted to. You know, I'm attracted to art that has something to say about the world that I live in. Um, I don't know how that art is not political, and mine is, so. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So, I'm gonna borrow this question, actually, from Darnell Moore. Um, I think it's a hard question for me to answer, surprisingly. So, um, could you or how would you imagine a, a world in which we loved black and brown people? I don't know. I don't know because, um, again, like you're speaking about words that are so outside of like my experience and how I understand white supremacy. Um, I, I don't understand white supremacy as a lack of love of white people for black people, um, or a lack of love you know, in the country for black people. I mean, that's a valid way in brown people of understanding it, but I don't know that white people love themselves or each other. You, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not saying that to attack you know, white people you know, as, as a group. I am saying that you know, one of the dominant frames of history is people using power to exploit other people 
in order to get things. Um, America is, you know, I mean, for all of my criticism, I don't know that America is particularly unique in that. And so, for me, like, being historically rooted, like, that being my philosophical frame, I don't even mean, like, knowing more about history, but actually that, you know, like, the first question I, I go to is I say, well, how do other human beings live? I'm making my way very slowly right now through this Barbara Tushman book called The Distant Mirror, so history of the 14th century. And she has this chapter on serfs, and she goes through the literature of how people talk about serfs. And it's no different than how people talk about black people except the substitution for the science that, you know, we use for black people, black people being scientifically, if you're genetically, if it's replaced by God. That's, that's really, really the only difference. So when you get to that, you say, well, damn, this is something about the human condition. Like, and I guess in many ways, like, that's the power of the African-American experience. When you begin to understand it, it's actually a statement about the human condition. Um, it's tough for me to answer that question. What, what love is there? You know, it'd be like me looking at, at the 14th century and said, well, what would the world look like? What would the 14th century had looked like had the nobles loved the serfs? <laughs> it's like tough. I'm not mocking you. I'm saying it's like a tough way for me to like actually like see things. So I, I, I you know, I feel very, very ill-equipped to answer that question. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.